I just opened a startup, an independently financed startup production company. And so for a half a second, we thought if the church, you know, files five lawsuits, does that effectively bankrupt us in our first year in business? And we might have said, hey, maybe maybe we ought to talk about this or, or have a conversation with our investors or our attorneys. And, you know, Leo is, you know, I'm not doing this with a bunch of pussies. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. Seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Here we are. We're rolling. All right. Uh, We're here to talk today with, on my left, Aaron Sedman. Hello. Co-founder of the IPC, Intellectual Property Corporation. Not difficult to say at all. <laughs> you can just keep it to IPC if it's too difficult for you. IPC, IPC. Uh, and on my right, Devin Graham Hammonds. Also a mouthful. Right there. Also a mouthful. Yeah. I have not been able to commit to the full Devin Hammonds, but um, I never saw myself as a three-name person, but I am now. But you are now. Uh, of A&E. And we're here to talk about the Arts and Entertainment Network. Arts and Just A and E. Just A and E. That's right. That's right. So we are here to talk about the Arts and Entertainment Network's Emmy-winning show, Leah Remini, Scientology and the Aftermath. I think there's a trend here. Also, <laughs> a, bit of a, a bit of a mouthful. Wordy. Yeah. Wow. That really just rolls right off the tongue. We like colons in every single one of our show titles. The title was a lot to get to, actually. We were just talking about that yesterday. It was serious trying to find a title, and we found maybe the worst, but it's legally sound. And um, it, was the, it was the best of the worst options, and it really came down to the wire because they wanted to put the press release out. And it had to have Leah's name in it. had to have Leah's name, couldn't have the word cult, and couldn't have a verb Right, couldn't it. have the word expose or... Right. No. Takes on. There's no challenging. There's no we, investigating. It had to be sort of neutral for legal reasons. We wanted the word Scientology in there. And so we then said, okay, with all of those ingredients, let's come up with the worst show title possible. And I think we nailed it. We did We did nail it. And it is so long to write out every single time you have to write it out. So we call it Aftermath or internally Leah. But it's a, it's a long one. But it goes to show... That a title doesn't mean it's going to be a hit or it's not going to be a hit. Bad title, True. hit show. Right. And Agreed. I'm sure every you know higher up will take notice of that and not put their uh, producers and executives through the paces <laughs> in coming up with 93 different title ideas. Well, everyone loves generating an endless number of show title lists. Mo- <laughs> most producers find that to be the most enjoyable part of their job. So let's not immediately get rid of that. But I think you make a decent point. Right. <laughs> All right. So is I, the sarcasm? Uh, it's too much. No, it's 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 uh, it's pretty subtle. It's okay. pretty subtle. I think you can yeah. see it, even though it's a podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun. So <laughs> thank you, thank you both. I'm really really excited to be here to talk about one of my favorite shows, one of the most iconic shows of the last couple of years, 
as mentioned, Emmy winning uh, and a show that not just entertaining has really shaped culture, right? And had a profound effect, which is not always the case with the types of shows that we get to make. Uh, so we're gonna start this uh, as, as we start every one of these with the light bulb. And I guess I'll throw it over, I believe to you, Aaron, what was the light bulb for <coughs> we'll, what we'll call the Leah Remini Scientology show? How's that? Sure. Um, well, it, it really started with a phone call from Leah Remini's agent, Brian Spizer at APA, um, who had been talking to Leah about doing something about her time in, in, in the Church of Scientology. And they weren't they and they had started even some discussions with with some of the buyers in town. And he said, hey, we're trying to figure out who would be a good production partner for her. Um, this is a re it's really tricky subject matter. Um, there's some fear around getting involved in a show that's going to be critical of the Church of Scientology, which I think now we take for granted. But at the time, there had been going clear from which Alex Gibney and Time Warner and HBO were 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 harassed, to say the least, uh, by the Church of Scientology. So there was some trepidation around that. And I think Brian's point was, hey, there's not many producers that I can put in front of Leah that will take this on and do it in the right way and and PS figure out what it is because it wasn't really sure what it is. At the time, there was discussions about her doing a one-off about her time in the Sea Org, uh, and she actually didn't spend a lot of time in the Sea Org, we, we later learned. So we went into that, me and my partner, Eli Holzman, went into APA and sat down with Brian and Leah and just had a, a freewheeling conversation about what it is that she wanted to say, what was important to her, and then what form could that take? And out of that meeting, we felt like we were sitting on an actual television series idea and even had the um, sort of the loose makings of what that format might be. And so then we inserted ourselves into the discussions that had started with buyers. And so we then started talking primarily to A&E um, about what we th how we saw the show and what we thought the show could be and then so it went from hey maybe this is a one-off to four you know I was talking with Amy Savitsky and I think over text she agreed it should be four episodes and then Eli would talk to Elaine and then suddenly it was six episodes and I think by the time we were we had then started shooting. It had gone to eight episodes. And by the time we were done with season one, it was they had added specials. And so it just sort of orga organically grew into a 10 episode order. Gotcha. Now, so, Devin, uh, with the network conversations, it sounds like predated even Aaron's involvement in this. What was your understanding of the show? What did you heard about? What had you heard about it? You know, and why why just one? I mean, I, was that more just Leah's kind of point of view? It, it really was. Um... An evolution, in just like Aaron was saying. I actually was on maternity leave and came back and Amy said, uh, I have a project for you involving Leah Remini and IPC and the Church of Scientology. And I was like, great, what's the show? She's like, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's Leah's sort of like the coolest, biggest person that's left the church. And we have to make an awesome show out of it. And I was like, great. So I listened to Leah's book on tape 
And uh, I was trying to read it, but I had a newborn, so that didn't work out. Um, and so he also listened to Leah's book. <laughs> and then I got on the phone with Aaron, and he gave me the loose structure that was really, you know, Leah's on this journey, and she's left. And we started really talking about what that journey is going to be. And then Leah would be like, I'm not on a journey. I don't know if I'm on a journey. Am I on a journey? And it was a lot of circular conversations. Leah wouldn't actually was 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 upset about the word journey being used and refused to admit or acknowledge that she was on a journey. And about halfway through filming, she turned to me and Eli and said, man, I heard that. I'm on this crazy journey. Like, this is what what a journey I'm on. And is that because so, she's just a black and white person and she felt like I closed that door and now I'm where I need to be? Yeah, I think she didn't expect to go on it. I think she 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 really thought she would just talk to these former Scientologists and hear their stories and help bring those stories to the public. That was that was that was sort of the baseline of the format and what she wanted to do and what was important to her but she was shocked by what she was learning as she was going through it which surprised us we were surprised that she was surprised and that when you're making a documentary television series and someone has that sort of reaction in front of your cameras as you're doing it that's rare that's that's lightning in a bottle that's really special and so the format started working on two sort of parallel levels. On the one hand, she was getting these amazing stories from these uh, uh, former contributors and survivors of Scientology. On the other hand, she was wrestling with her own feelings and emotions, and you could see that on screen. And I think that's what was so special about that first season. Yeah, and there was that moment we were sitting... I kept asking these guys for it to be a present tense show. It's really important to A&E not to just do past tense storytelling to make it feel current and of the moment. And that was where we were like, great, she's on a journey. And Leah really thought she knew everything that she felt, if that makes sense. She was like, I know what I know, and I'm good, and I want these people to get their day, and I'm all right. And when I kept saying, but what's going to be present tense? And then these guys you know, started to bring us the content, and there was the moment we were sitting in your offices in the Bay, and we were watching footage they were rolling in the car while Leah and Mike were talking. And they're kind of downloading from this conversation they had with one of the contributors and they're reeling about the the story they just heard and they're asking each other questions. Leah's asking Mike a lot of questions. Mike is giving her information and then Leah would be like, and I love that diner and, and I, I want to go here. And it was so real and she went from crying to make everybody laugh and we were like, this is so in the moment and it's so special and so you i think these guys perfectly crafted these sort of standalone stories that are amazing and then they wrapped it up all in the actual journey that leah was taking and i that was a moment though in in the editing room when when we when we saw that car footage because what devin's leaving out is she also turned to our season one showrunner alex Werso, the, the the talented alex Werso, and said pull up all those fucking car scenes and all the stuff that's like in between the scenes and because that became the essence of Leah's journey and that's really where the secret sauce of the show ended up being and that's where we sort of found it and located it and brought it out and started putting those moments back into the episodes because they weren't all in those episodes so the car rides quote unquote became really important a really important ingredient for for the series sure the the interviews mm-hmm. right because in a lot of ways this the is stories. a bit like a talk show yes. in, in some ways but the interviews leah does that's really the scientology in the aftermath mm-hmm. but you need the leah remini part 
Right. To, to keep your title true. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think, but I think the aftermath is the Leah part too, you know, seeing her go through this. I mean, we've all spent a lot of time with Leah discussing her own revelations about her experience in the church. And there was a time that she invited me to her house and walked me into her garage and opened up these big closets that just had all the books and all of the courses. And I was like, this people have to see this. People have to see what you have here. And she just took a book off the shelf and started walking me through how uh, how you learn and how they do how how they do their studying. And I was like, the audience needs to understand this is how it works. And I called Aaron and Alex and right an audience that's used to just one book. Yes, right, right, right. and <laughs> and an audience that's used to learning being asking questions. You don't the way that the that Scientology teaches is you just read. You don't get to say, oh, and let me ask you a question to help me dissect it. You are just reading it. If you don't understand it, you read it again, and you read it again, and you read it again. And it is very hard to wrap your head around. And I called poor Alex, who, um, like the rest of us, does not have any desire to be on camera, and said, you really have to do this. You have to go on camera to show the realness of the fact that we're all exposed to this learning. And it's one of my favorite parts of season one when he shows up and he I mean I feel so bad for him no showrunner wants to be on camera he really really didn't want to be on camera we had many conversations about that um, and he he ultimately agreed. We weren't we weren't going to force anyone to do anything that they weren't comfortable doing. I was going to force Aaron to do it if Alex didn't. <laughs> and and yeah, well, and I inadvertently appeared on yes, camera yes. a bit in, in in a couple of the specials, but we wouldn't. You know, it 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 was a scary thing for some people to participate this uh, participate in this show. I we, we gathered the staff and had a conversation with them about it. We registered domain domain names about ourselves. We made our social media private. We had endless consultations with our lawyers and A and E's lawyers. And so, Alex's concerns, I think, were understandable. Um, but it was also important creatively to do away with the artifice of a TV show and to really show what was really going on. And so we're happy that he made the ultimate decision to appear on camera after some pressure, perhaps, was a applied. By... I will, I will, I will say that I made, might have called him several times, and it's a good thing I've known Alex for fifteen years, and so. But you know what? It's a moment that many, many people reference because it was so real and so true and also just really helped the audience understand that – talk about a journey. Like the filmmakers here were also on a real journey of learning about this church and how it works. And it's it's a lot to get your arms around. Well, and pardon my language, but I read that Leah on your first call, which I think we're going to go back and reference, said this is not a show for pussies. Right. And you and Aaron, or sorry, you and Eli had to look at each other and ask, we're not pussies. Are we pussies? Are, Are we, we pussies? So, um, so did you. Question mark. <laughs> did you. Apply? That's what happened. That's what she, that happened in that first meeting at APA in their conference room. That's what we, we, we made one comment. Of, we had just opened our company. I just opened a startup, an independently financed startup production company. And so for a half a second, we thought, should we check with our investors uh, if the church, you know, files five lawsuits, does that effectively bankrupt us in our first year in business? These were real questions for us. And we might have said, hey, maybe maybe we ought to 
talk about this or, or have a conversation with our investors or our attorneys. And, you know, Leo is, you know, well, I'm not doing this with a bunch of pussies. So and then, you know, if, if if that's how you are, then we shouldn't do this together. And we had sort of a funny moment where we were asking ourselves whether we were pussies. We concluded that we weren't pussies um, for the record. Um, but that 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 definitely was. And it was an interesting Leah Remini moment where we knew exactly right away, right from the jump you know what we were dealing with and how direct and straightforward and ballsy and brave that she is because she was just you know i'm charging up the hill are you guys coming with me and we admired that spirit and we thought that that was really fresh and really genuine and exciting so as 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 potentially um fraught this sort of endeavor might be for a startup production company, it was really exciting. And if you're a producer and you don't get these opportunities very often to make these sorts of shows, it was it was irresistible. It was something we couldn't not do. I just want to make one quick point about Devin coming back from maternity leave into this um, in, into this series. Um, and this is just um, something I would suggest to my fellow producers out there that are listening. So I requested Devin. And usually you don't like request your day-to-day executive at the network, or maybe some do. But typically you're just told this is who's going to be on your project, or maybe it's the person that bought it from you. But I had a, a good relationship with Devin, and I knew she was coming back, and... I wanted to. Um, I, wa- I knew that she was the right person with the right skill set and the right sort of force of personality, and was someone I really trusted and really had a lot of respect for. And I knew that this would be a precarious journey making the show. And I went to Amy Savitsky and I said, I don't know if it's you know normal to request your executive, but when's Devin back? Because she should be the one making the show with us. Well, I'm blushing. I can feel it. <laughs> But it's your al- your alabaster skin, alabaster skin is skin blushing. Is rosy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it 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 is uh, the nicest compliment from these wonderful producers to um, have been requested, and it has been the greatest. And we're journey. sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> but I think it's a it, what Aaron saw. I think. I learned in our time together, we are an awesome team and we do fight like a family. And Devin's uh, my work wife. It's very true. I'm, he has uh, had a lot of late night phone calls with me. And later, later for you because you're on the East Coast. Yeah, that's, that's not point. really fair. You're three hours ahead. <laughs> so when I call you at 7.45 p.m. Mm-hmm. my time. It's not it late for you. happens to be a little late on your on your end. It's but you true. always picked up. I do. I always pick up. And my and darling always husband. super friendly and in a great mood and <laughs> eager and excited to talk to me. It's I true. I really appreciated that. I was pregnant during season two, so Aaron might have received some of the hormonal backlash of like, it's 1045. Didn't notice it. <laughs> didn't, didn't notice any of that. You Is were, this an you emergency? Were an, you were an angel. Right. Say <laughs> so that's that's breaking new grounds to get pregnant to not have to work on a show is, uh, uh, right? And, and, and it you didn't know work. What? It didn't work. They <laughs> went ahead work. and she had to do the sitcom and they had the whole hiatus while I was out of a Attorney leaf and boom, I'm back and here we go, season three. Well, let's let's walk it back a second <laughs> before actually you even made that request. There was this meeting at APA that we just spoke about. Yes, and 
Brian Spicer had called you and said, I'm going to put a few companies in front of Leah. Correct. Right? So what was it? It was a jump ball, as we say. <laughs> yeah, or a bake-off. Or right? a bake-off. Right, and I know right. how you love to bake. So what was it about your pitch? You know, what did you prepare going in? Well, we had read her book, and we knew, obviously, we're familiar with Going Clear, and um, we're f- somewhat familiar with Scientology, but we were still novices on the subject, of course. I think that, you know, we were um, approaching it, I think, from two different perspectives. One, we weren't really interested in making a quote-unquote reality TV show. We felt like we could make uh, a, a more premium documentary series, and that with Leah being such a star and the subject matter being so titillating and controversial that we could make a premium doc series on the one hand, but that was really commercial and appropriate for the A&E audience on the other. And so we, 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 that was part of sort of our, our POV about the project. And I think that appealed to Leah. I think it appealed to Brian as her agent. And I think it appealed to the network as well. And so... Um, we're, we're probably not the only producers that can do that, of course, but that was something that was important to us was to not just make, you know, a typical unscripted reality show, but about Scientology. And the other thing was, you know, our, I, I, I would like to think our track record and some of the other kinds of content that we had made, um, I think, comforted APA and and Leah in, okay, these guys you'll be in good hands with these guys and i think that was a part of it as well okay so you're ultimately chosen obviously and then the conversations pick back up you've been primed a little bit at a e but did you take it wide what sort of development materials did you put together or was this such a clear was this such a clear concept it's leah remini major star it's church of scientology you know everyone's fascinated I'll it. be honest, I've, I've never put together so few written materials to get a series greenlit. I mean, it was mostly phone conversations. It was a couple of emails. Um, this thing, you know, a, a lot of credit to A&E, to Devin and to Amy Savitsky and to Elaine Frontaine Bryant because they really saw the potential for what this could be and they made it happen. They made it happen internally. And I'm not saying we didn't have a, a good vision for it and hopefully we instilled some confidence in our ability to shepherd this, but A&E really saw the opportunity and they were ballsy enough to 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 dive in and want to do and you, you know, we take it for granted but most networks i think would have been they all say now that they wish that they had made that show or what's their leah remini scientology version but i think most of them would not have put this on the air and would not have endeavored to in the first place and i give any a lot of credit for having the temerity to do so in the first place i i would agree with that the, there's never been a show with less materials and more confidence in in that pairing. When when IPC and Leah was there, we didn't we didn't know exactly what the show was. We just knew what it was going what it could be, and 
And it we had really, to find it a little bit. There was no definitely. pilot. There was no pilot. It, it didn't matter no... what you wrote down on a piece of paper. We needed to get Leah out there meeting with these former Scientologists, and we needed to see what that sort of interaction was going to be like. And we spent a fair amount of time in post trying to figure out what episode one should be. And then once we figured out what it should be, we spent a long time getting that just right so we could then apply that across the series and it was tense and and intense and but ultimately a very fruitful creative collaboration between IPC and Leah and A&E yeah the it really was found in the making of it we at A&E do um, what's called a vision call at the start of a pilot or a series where Rob and Elaine and Amy and Shelley are creative heads, and then the executive on the show, and then maybe some other um, heads of strategy and marketing and press are all in the room. And the idea is that you sit there with the producers and you kind of all hold hands and say, this is what we're going to go make. And it's, it's literally the vision so that you can't get eight months down the road and have the marketing team be like, wait, I thought that we were shooting this in Texas or whatever and have a left turn. And that vision call or that vision meeting was very much like, Did that go we're well? going to go see <laughs> what the show is. They were like, what's the show? And we're like, well, Leah is Leah. <laughs> She's left the church and we're going to go meet these people. And I think that Aaron and Eli were like, we're going to gather a amazing amount of information and we're going to expose what Leah and Mike know. We had Mike, who was this, like, bulldog, amazing ex-gangster squad, as we call him, uh, person. And then we we're going to figure it out. And these guys, I think when you talk about episode one, I think the original episode one is still sitting, waiting for us to figure out where we're going to put it. Because it was a, so much to kick off that series. And we got episode one and it wasn't toothy enough for us to kick off the series with but it was so good we couldn't break it up and now it's still sitting waiting to it, be it, it, yeah it lacked some toothiness i'm gonna remember toothiness. i'm gonna remember that phrase um normally i'm the one with the phrases <laughs> it's amazing um he does have a whole list of phrases you know but uh that's yeah i think that the, the general plan was to to you know to go hunting where the ducks are um no, all joking aside, I think the, 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 there was a lot of trust there from, from A&E, really, about, I think Elaine even said as we were hanging up the Skype call, like when you think you've already hung up with the other side so they can't hear you, it was right in the last few seconds, I, I believe I saw Elaine turn to Devin and say, eh, I trust these guys, and then click, and then it went, and then the, the Skype call ended. And so that was... That's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> And then after the call ended, she was like, keep a close eye on I trust these guys to ruin. Um, but that was amazing to get that sort of support and latitude on something that was not cheap and scary and involved something that could be potentially litigious uh, and and involved a, a huge celebrity and and, and could be, a, a, if handled incorrectly, a black eye for publicity reasons as well. And so... Or, or more. I mean, you, you alluded to it earlier. What did you guys do to, you know, beyond the putting your Instagram private? I mean, what did you guys do to make sure that you guys... The legal process on this show is unmatched. Yeah, it's something that we've never really encountered before. Um, what we hired uh, First Amendment 
outside counsel. That was the first thing we did, someone who had experience dealing with the Church of Scientology. Um, we had regular, at one point, almost daily phone calls with, with David Sternbach and the, the wonderful legal team at A&E. And we got a massive number of letters from the church uh, multiple letters every week from from the church, from the church's council, um, from from different lawyers for the various participants that we were trying to talk to, uh, and um, it was a, it was a legal minefield, and you it had is a legal minefield, and, and and it is ongoing, and we of course were hoping in our wildest dreams that we could get the church to participate. I mean, we wanted to give them the opportunity to comment because we felt like that was the sort of impartial, balanced approach that we needed to take uh, as producers. It was important to try to include their perspective and their point of view. Uh, But we also thought it would make for great television if, God forbid, they agreed to, to, to go on camera. And so we were also engaged in a very careful outreach plan to seek comment. Now, as soon as you, you seek comment, though, they want to know what they're commenting on. So then you have to tell them just enough about what it is that, that the episodes are about. And that's a really careful decision. And then you have to figure out where in your production timeline you decide to reach out knowing that you're going to end up giving them information about what it is that you might be putting in your episode, knowing that they were going to potentially hire private investigators, which they did, and harass the production. And But you have to try to, uh, you have to try to be a bit impartial. You do want to seek comment from them. You do desire that sort of television moment if they ever decided to go on camera. And so these were all really careful strategic decisions that we had to make in close concert with A&E's legal team. And um, it's, it's a, it's an aspect to making this show that's very time consuming and doesn't always show up on screen, but is a really important part of being able to do the things we wanted to do creatively. There is such an involved legal vetting on this show. It is by far for me, the hardest show we've ever made because I am used to being able to watch cuts, you know, on my train ride to, to the, office or at night, you know, doing notes while I'm like on my couch at home. I watch every single cut of the show with our lawyers and we take notes with a, um, what's our memo called? What's the, the big, huge script of, I'm blanking on the, the legal memo. Yeah. The legal memo is just called the legal memo. Um, I'll try to think of a fancier name. Whatever it is, the legal memo that comes with every single cut is, 75 pages to back up every single claim that is made on our show. Right. We had to hire a particular clearance coordinator and we had to source things like a journalist would, quite frankly. We needed corroboration. We couldn't just accept the first person testimony of a claim that someone was making. We needed some other article to hopefully exist by some other reporter. We needed to find someone else that could back that story up. We needed a preponderance of evidence. And so we went from producers to documentary filmmakers to journalists. Uh, and that was 
a real education. Um, and I'd say, you know, on an, on, an, an, on an entertainment budget, you know, which is a really different thing. And on an entertainment schedule. Yes, so the New York schedule. Times, they're not going to publish a story until they're ready. And if that means six months of open-ended investigating, no problem. That's what they're geared toward. We have air dates and we're backed into those uh, for the most part. Um, and sometimes those air dates shift a bit in, in uncomfortable directions. But and you still so, need the bibliography. Right. But you still need the corroboration. You still need yeah. to be really buttoned up and you need to be ready to go. And you have a finite amount of money. There is a fun um, little side story that I was reminding Aaron of last night, which is at the very – we moved our air date of the show from January to November, which is major when you are finding a first season. And we were five weeks out and maybe on like rough cut five of the first episode trying to figure it out. And our lawyers said, maybe two weeks out, one week out, that all the letters that the church was sending us about our contributors, we had to represent the church. We couldn't, you know, we invited them to be on the show. They didn't want to be on the show. But by them sending us letters, we had to represent what they had to say about these people. And we all felt, well, that's not very fair. We've put this contributor on and now we're going to read a rather... um, unflattering account according to the church of this person and they and you know you've seen in the show there's snippets of the letters in there but they really wanted them represented and uh they said you have to do it so aaron the brilliant aaron sedman designed that open which is that cold open of leah you know in the dressed down denim shirt and her glasses reading these letters and they circled what they wanted us to the, – the, our lawyer said, you have to put this in, you have to put this in. And Leah read it and wasn't allowed to say, like, this is ridiculous or – or she just had to read it. And Aaron designed this open and it was a legal note that became a signature of the show that everyone has said is, like, their favorite thing about the show and tried to copy in a million other ways. And it happened maybe 10 days and we had – we literally had to have our – team in Stanford sew the pieces together. The show was delivered and then they shot them and then we dropped it in like as they were doing the online in Stanford, Connecticut. But it was just a it was just a way we we you know, we try to make a we try to turn it into a creative opportunity. Yeah, no, the idea was just really that Leah could connect personally, directly to her viewers in the beginning of that show and let them know what she's dealing with and what's really going on. And and to dress her down in this sort of casual denim shirt, all of that was by design to sort of, again, remove the artifice of the TV show and let her connect with the audience from the jump. Hey, you're this is a little bit different and this is and it's hey, it's a little bit complicated. And I'm going to start explaining it to you, but let's hold hands and, and, and do this together. And it was also kind of loud and buzzy and, and, and exciting to be able to open the show like that. Well, season one was definitely loud and exciting and buzzy. So you did something right. Uh, season two, jumping ahead, I read was really framed around this notion of, OK, now that you've kind of planted this flag, so many more people came out of the woodwork, right? I mean, was that, again, were you just anticipating that or that's just kind of naturally what happened okay let's do a season two because now we have thousands of people we can talk to as opposed to hundreds 
Well, the ratings were really strong. Well, of course, <laughs> so it was yeah, you had so some <laughs> impetus to keep yeah. sure you going. had to figure something out. But but uh, it it was unclear what we would do if we continued to do it, and did that make sense? And did we say everything that needed to be said? And then there were those conversations. But people really did reach out to Leah and Mike, particularly to Mike Rinder on his I, blog. I was going to say, I think the ratings and the business decision was there, but in ter- we had not anticipated it. And I give amazing credit to Leah and Mike, who are not by design TV producers, and were like, we have endless stuff to go into without going way inside baseball. We we have endless people coming out. These stories just keep coming. And Mike has done an unbelievable job of being the front man of receiving some of the greatest stories that I think we've put together. Yeah, Mike, Mike Rinder has been an incredible repository and producing partner on this series in the way that First of all, he's created a safe space for former Scientologists to reach out to him in the first place. And that's kind of everything. We, we, we couldn't book, have booked the show otherwise. It was people really – they weren't really trusting us in the beginning. They were trusting Mike and Leah and admired Leah and looked up to Leah and saw her as someone that had – you know, blazed a path for them. Uh, and that was, and then was giving them an opportunity to tell their stories. And so without Leah and Mike's pivotal role there, none of this would have happened, of course. And I think that the, it, it's, it's worth noting that the contributors really, they're not paid. They don't get anything out of it, really. A lot of the season one contributors had already sort of written their books. Their stories were somewhat out there, just not widely known. The season two contributors, I mean, and and anyone who stepped forward was attacked viciously. So, uh, the, if anything, they 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 really exposed themselves to 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 harm in that way just by by deciding to speak out on our series. But they did so because of Leah Remini and Mike Rinder, and I think the audience benefits from that. So to that point, what do you believe the ultimate goal is that you're working towards here? I mean, is it to create like an underground railroad railroad? Is it, uh, you know, is to get the church to ultimately appear on the show? I mean, what what where what is it building towards? Because the pressure, right? Ratings are obviously still really strong. But at a certain point, right, how do you just stop from repeating yourself? Well, I think what was very cool about what naturally happened was that when these guys built the open of season one, it had this narrative of Leah sort of ending with, if I can just save one family, if I can stop one, I'm going to do it. She was so overcome with all of the, the abuse of the disconnection that happened that she just wanted to make a difference. And by the end of season two, in real time, we had someone leaving the church. And to me, when we learned that, that it was it was even more than the network and the safe space and all of the good and the uh, it it was unbelievable to see the effect. And a contributor that we had in season two. Talk about two, the present tense, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, that was the most amazing moment when Romina said, yes. uh, "When you, they always start with, when did you leave the Church of Scientology? And she said, two weeks ago. 
and it, it, you, I still get chills about it. You were like, this is amazing. We're putting a family back together. And I don't think we ever thought we would do that. And we never promised we would do that. And to the extent that we discussed it early on with Lee and Mike, they would scoff at it. Like, hey, that's unrealistic. You don't understand Scientology. That's never going to happen. We're not going to scale the walls of, you know, Hemet or, you know, and, and break people out in the middle of the night. That's not how it works. We shouldn't even try it. That's silly. But... But yeah, you know, by the end of season two, it actually did happen and they were able to reunite a family and they were able to do it to a certain extent in front of our cameras. And that was an amazing moment. I think, you know, the point that Lee has been making about season three is, hey, now we really need to go after the church's foundation. We need to go after their source of power and their their resources. And we've get we've told enough gut wrenching uh, personal stories of survivors. Now it's time to get at the church and their tax exempt status and what it is that keeps them, you know, on this perch. And we need to go after that now. And that's a much more ambitious thing than just telling individual personal stories. Um, And without giving away too much, those are some of the designs and ambitions for season three, which we're just getting underway now. It's true. We just had our vision call. I think the um, from the network perspective, we kind of looked back back at the real time and said we didn't buy this project thinking there was an ultimate goal you know and certainly we we would not be able to predict what had happened but um now seeing it all unfold we kind of said back to these guys so what should we do what what is happening and it has been a natural progression season two was people coming out and more stories happening and now season three is leah saying well, let's stop just telling these stories of abuse. Let's let's take let's chip away at that protected surface because it's not fair that they just continue being out there and they and they don't suffer any of the ramifications. But most places, most channels, mm-hmm. frankly most production companies, uh maybe not most production companies, many shy away from controversy. And even though I someone gave me the phrase once controversy creates cash, Right. And that really is what drives so many of the great shows on television. (laughs) Why is it that A&E as a group runs towards controversy so, so frequently? I mean, more more frequently, frankly, than most other channel groups. Definitely more frequently. I think the leadership at A&E understands that being brave I hate the word disruptor because it's just overused, but the idea that that is um, in our zeitgeist is... Zeitgeist, not overused. Not overused, right? I think that the idea that we are brave enough to tell stories that invite controversy is is exciting and, and, and a way to have a brand that is unparalleled. And that's how we stand out. It is... We are not just making entertainment. We are truly making stories that people want to see and react to. And I really credit our leadership. Elaine always says, find out the show we that is impossible to make and let's buy it. And this is this is one of them. I, I, I think that's true, too. And that's a really exciting proposition for producers, that you have a network that will 
sort of run to that controversy like a moth to a flame and will embrace that. And, oh, it's really difficult and it's a legal minefield and you're not exactly sure where it's going or how it will end. Cool. What is the uh, what, how much is it per episode? And I think that's a really uh, encouraging thing for the creative community to have a place that you can go to and make those kinds of programs and have a true partner uh, on the other side. And even the, le- you know, my partner, Eli Holzman, really dealt with the brunt of the legal challenges on this show. We, there was so much to do. There was a little bit of dividing and conquering. So I might have been in the trenches with our showrunner or with Leah, but someone had to read all these letters and respond and really work closely with A&E to make sure that we were doing everything in a sort of buttoned up manner. But that's part of it, too. You guys don't just embrace the controversial shows. You do it in a, a, a responsible fashion. All right. So what's very clear is that you guys spend a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Aaron, you requested Devin as your executive. There's a lot of affinity. Devin, you're answering phone calls at 1030 at night. 1045. 1045. <laughs> not a minute later. That's the sweet spot, by the <laughs> way. He usually sends me a text at 1030 trying to have the conversation over text that inevitably leads to a phone call at 1045. That's my move. That's my general move. Um, that's And that's my advice for others out there. If you want to get Devin on the phone, you start with a text at 1030. Love a text that sounds say, slightly alarming. Say something, yeah, slightly alarming, a little bit incendiary, even accusatory, and you will get her on the phone within 15 minutes after that. That, that was it's effective. It's the truth. I, I would like to print out our text exchanges. I would prefer you saves. don't do that. <laughs> I would like Leah to read them at the start of uh, the next season. Uh, we've talked about that. We've talked about what else could Leah read. <laughs> we don't have any more letters. There's, There's lots lot. of interesting, colorful emails that mm-hmm. went around that, mm-hmm. that, that could be read as well. But. <laughs> but at the core of this relationship, obviously, is a lot of affinity and a lot of time spent. Mm-hmm. And having now done a number of these episodes this podcast, what has become abundantly clear to me is that in order for a show to succeed, you need a very passionate producer and a very passionate executive. Anything less than that, and you have about a 0% chance of success. I agree. So knowing that, how many of these shows can you handle? I mean, you can only take so many phone calls at 1045. Mm-hmm. You can only make and something. I have that spot reserved. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, so eleven fifteen. Do you have? You oh know, no, we're still on the phone. Else? Have you met right. Aaron? He's very verbose. <laughs> Slight, <laughs> slightly on the loquacious side. It is a New Year's resolution. I am working on it. I'm going to stop talking right now. Dot dot dot. It's, exactly. He. There is no short call. But um, this has been a show like no other for me. I, The six years I've been at A&E, I've done 25 series, and I think at any time, any executive can juggle anywhere from three to seven series and a handful of development, but there is a very big difference between doing this show and doing Wahlburgers. You know, I can watch Wahlburgers on my train commute. I have to watch this with a legal team. It takes up so much of my schedule to have the weekly legal call to have the 1045 call about the legal call that's going to happen the next day. Um, It's not easy. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing at A&E right now is that we're doing these very heavy shows and they are worthy and they take a tremendous amount of attention and care. And so whereas we used to be able to juggle three to seven series, you might 
maybe be able to juggle three, you know, and that's really it's, it's really hard, but it shows in the quality of shows that we're doing. If it's helpful to you and it's okay with 44 Blue, I'm happy to note some of those Wahlburgers episodes if it frees up more time for you on the Scientology series. <laughs> I give great cut notes. Mm-hmm. We've just expanded it to an hour, so it does take a little bit of time to look at the hour Wahlburgers. Yeah, but but to that point, there aren't, I'm sure a and not hiring more executives. Nope, we're not. Uh, <laughs> no, so we are not. just have to be... You just have to love what you're doing. I mean, I, this sounds so silly, but if you are not in love with the content that you are doing, then you won't put the time in that it takes to make it great. And so at A&E, at least, it works in a way that you are totally in ownership of your show and you have to be responsible about interacting with the marketing and the ad sales and the research and everybody and you care for it like it's your child and so you would answer the phone at 10 I'll, I'll say this and I've never made a show without uh, I've never made a show with this level of involvement from a network executive. Devin really was a fellow producer on it. The, the 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 credit she got on the show, standing on that stage, holding that Emmy, that was as much Devin's as any producer on the show. And that's a unique experience, I think, uh, that you know, in terms of working with a network. It it Devin was all in and committed um, and needed to be because the show took a village to really make it. And it and our our sort of indefatigable showrunners, uh, Alex Werso in season one, Miles Reef in season two, my partner, Eli Holzman, Devin's colleagues at A&E, and of course, Leah and Mike, it, it required the entire sort of community of producers on this project to bring it to fruition. And I'm not sure what we would have done or how we would have gotten to the finish line without Devin being so passionate and so committed uh, to the project. That is very kind of Aaron. I have to also pay back the compliment that it is not very often that you... I flew here every other week of November and December of season one for 30 hours because I had a one-year-old, so I didn't want to come for longer than that. And I sat in the bay with Aaron and Eli and Leah and our team of editors and went through every single episode, every single week before we aired. We were delivering shows on Saturdays that were airing on Tuesdays. And at one point, I think we all had the flu. There was boxes and boxes of tissues. And I mean, Aaron I had had an emergency appendectomy, which was a touch touch more severe than than the the run-of-the-mill flu, flu, if I can just be Jewish for a moment. And... (laughs) It, it was. I. It was the uh, the show. The yeah, it was. It was the day after the premiere that I realized I had uh, appendicitis and was rushed into surgery. And I woke up from surgery with all of these congratulations on the ratings emails and texts. And uh, he literally gave a pound. It's a bittersweet of moment. <laughs> it's the the blood, sweat, and tears is real when it we really mean it. He really bled a lot on the show, um, but the level of commitment it has taken and continues to take on this show is um, unmatched. Well, let's talk about that for a moment here. Let's pat you on the back, Aaron. How many shows does IPC... Don't let me stop you. (laughs) How many shows does IPC currently produce? 
Oh, only the ones for Annie. We have a handful of 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 series with a, with with a number of networks, um, and we've I think we've grown night you know for a startup for for uh, we've been in business now about two and a half years. I think we've grown to a, a nice size where we're busy, but fortunate enough that we're able to focus on the shows that we really like and we really care about and we really want to make. I don't think there's really a project on our slate that is, uh, hey, this is good because it'll keep the lights turned on. We've been fortunate enough to be able to curate it a, a bit more to be able to work on stuff that we're really passionate about. We do have three series for A&E, and they, they're really um, important buyer to us, and we really value our relationship with them at the highest level, and they've been wonderful, wonderful partners in supporting our sort of creative vision for these various shows. So what is your advice to producers out there? Because I think most producers face this challenge, the, you know, sort of the art versus commerce, right? And especially there's investors involved and there's numbers you have to hit, or maybe even when companies become uber successful and they sell for, you know, crazy multiples, and then you really have to hit these targets. How are you as a company, a really, yes, a startup, but a really large startup and a successful one, able to maintain quality control and expand at the same time? Well, that's the challenge, right? That's exactly the challenge. Um, it's a it's a business where, you know, there are demands for volume um, and growth and quantity, um, but the you know it's harder and harder to maintain that quality control the more you grow. I mean, the key is uh, you're supposed to, the playbook is build slightly ahead of demand. And be able to have a flexible accordion-like structure to your business so you can expand and contract as needed. Uh, but we're, we're in a really special moment in television content. There's been a flight to quality. There's more premium content on basic cable. And there are premium buyers that did not really exist three, four, five years ago. And so there are places that will write you pretty big checks for your passionate documentary project and that that has allowed us to populate our slate with the kinds of content that we are um, really passionate about as opposed to hey we just really need to grow the business so let's do a show for them and a show for them and you know let's do a you know let's do a docu docu follow docu soap and let's do a format and you know we're we're in a, a a special moment, I think, where there's more opportunity that th- than there's ever been to be able to do the kinds of content that we particularly here at IPC like to make. I would also just like to pat these guys on the back. As a, as a startup that is growing and have a business to run besides our show, both Aaron and Eli are so um, involved and hands-on that they hear me always say, like, this is the break of glass emergency, which I've broken a lot of glasses in the last two and a half years, where I just have to, I go right to them and say, you have to fix this, whether it's um, an act of a specific episode or a legal note or, um, or you know, a, a, there's, a, there's an interesting relationship when you have a talent as big as Leah, you know, when she was doing Kevin Can Wait and we had to adjust the whole schedule for her to be able to go to New York. These guys always answer the phone. They always know what's going on. They are so responsible for their content that that gives us the trust to be able to continue to buy projects from them. I will just say, though, while we always answer the phone, um, 
please be forewarned that we are a bit verbose. So those phone, <laughs> ca- those phone calls will not be brief. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, we're, and we're working on it, like I said earlier. Both Eli and I are working on being a bit less loquacious. They are very long-winded. And they also have an amazing ability to seed phrases and sayings like inception. And they plant them in our brains and then it comes back out. So just... We'll, we should do a follow-up after. The fog of war. The fog of war. Tops and tails. Hunting where the ducks are. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that these guys say that then become commonplace vernacular in the halls of a that's That's really my biggest accomplishment. I say that's the legacy the last, right there. That's the legacy right yeah. there. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's give a little advice here. A lot of the listeners of this podcast are younger executives, assistants, people just starting out. And so one question I'm posing to everyone now is the advice you would give to your 25-year-old self. So, Devin, 25-year-old Devin. 25-year-old Devin. You know, business changed a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, I think you've gone over a lot of the sort of the, the you know, best practices here. But what, you know, what advice would you give 25-year-old Devin? What advice do you give to the assistants, managers, coordinators, you know, running around the halls of A&E to find success uh, in this business? To find success in this business, I honestly think... Being honest and owning your mistakes is how I personally have learned the most. There, There is no unscripted television classes that you can take. You have to learn on the job. There is now a podcast. Well, now there's a to. podcast. But you have to learn on the job. And if you're willing to acknowledge what you don't know and then learn quickly, I think that is – that's the way that you get going. And it, it is – the basis of our successful relationship is honesty and directness. And I think that comes from just. I think that comes from Devin being from New Jersey, <laughs> in all honesty. But... I am extremely direct. But it's helpful. 25 um, year old Aaron, you're up to bat. I, I think that uh, I think it's important to to go with your gut and to have a point of view. You have to trust yourself on some level, even if you don't know shit and you're naive and you're green and you're at the beginning of the business. There's a reason that you're pursuing this and it's your own instincts that you're going to have to rely on long term, right or wrong. And so it's important to be in touch with that gut instinct and to trust it and have a point of view. If you don't have a point of view, you don't belong in the room. You don't belong on the conference call. You shouldn't, there's no reason for you to be participating at a certain level. And, um, and I think that's important. And, uh, and I think it's, I think what Devin was saying, you know, you, 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 there is a, a, a bit of having to be really honest with yourself about learning on the job. Don't fall in love with your own shit. Be be ruthless in your in the development of your own ideas because I promise you they're not perfect and I promise you they're going to change forty times if you're lucky enough to get to make that idea into a television show, uh, and so it's you know don't 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 fall in love with your with your own idea torture test it and be open to constructive feedback from others from people you respect and trust and uh, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do at any age. It's a really hard thing to do if you're 25 and full of piss and vinegar and think you know everything. Um, so that, that that that's what I would say. I agree with that. 
and find a really, really talented partner on the network side. And, and find a really, really talented partner and, on the production And make side. them your friend and then do the most impossible TV show together. That's my other advice. Late night phone calls. You're doing it. And uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. The show is incredible. Uh, it's an almost impossible show. I wouldn't call it impossible because you pulled it off, but the almost impossible ones really are the best ones and the most meaningful. Uh, you're really holding up the legacy of this building, right? The former Buna Murray headquarters, so real world born out of this building, the formal Mar- former Marvel Comics headquarters, Spider-Man. So I think Spider-Man, right. the real world, Scientology, that's a pretty interesting legacy. Good legacy for the building. Yeah, yeah. So, And you'll add even more to it, I'm sure. I, I, I sit in Stanley's old office, actually, which I guess was Jonathan Murray's old office. So it's it's kind of cool, actually, to be a part of that that sort of Hollywood history. I, There's I, no joke there. I just want, <laughs> I just wanted to say that I think it's cool to be a part of that. <laughs> right, and we're out. Thank you. So there you have it. The true story of Leah Remini, Scientology, and the aftermath. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you to my guests, Aaron Sedman and Devin Graham Hammonds, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EPWithNP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.